There are 13 letters that are clearly said that Paul wrote. The argument is over the book of Hebrews. I think it's silly. The first word usually in every book is the person who wrote the book. Uh, and of course, very few of them, by the way, are going to be, if I can challenge you as we go through the 13, uh, to discover which one um, is just Paul. Because people talk about how brilliant he was, but it was never, you know, it's like you see Paul and Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul has these other persons that are included in the letter, and we don't give them any credit because we just assume somehow they were like riding shotgun while Paul was writing them. So let me give you this quick overview. You just have to write it down, however, um, wherever you feel so led. And what's that? Oh, cool. And I have these files I can send to you. From the book of Acts to the book of Revelation, every book in between is a letter. It's just a letter. I mean, it's, it's scripture, so there's, I mean, there's a lot more to be said of it. The Greek word we would use is the word epistelas. Epi, meaning upon. Stelas means to send. For instance, apostelas. Apo means out, out, out of. And stelas again means sent. So an apostelas or an apostle is someone sent out. An epistelas is something sent upon. And that's what we'll just call a letter. In the Greek, traditionally, you'll just see two words. Uh, we have a lot more in this kind of thing. But usually the words are pros. Pros means towards. And then a place. Like in this case, it says Romanai. Here. Uh, of those particular letters, we will start primarily with ones that are locational. Some people call them circular. And what that means is they were circulated, but really they're identified by their location. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians are all um, specifically to a, to a location. We have one guy in between there, Philemon, where Paul in essence pulls card on him. And then we have the Thessalonian letters, which again, Thessaloniki or Thessalonica is a location. Which then tells us that the majority of Paul's letters other than First and Second Timothy, Titus, and that letter Philemon, are all locational. Which means that nine of the thirteen letters then are of location. Four of those letters are specifically addressed to a person. Uh, the Philemon letter, it'll be a fun week when we get to go through that because basically... A Roman slave escapes from Philemon, but Philemon had gotten saved through Paul's ministry, and Paul just basically said, he followed me home, can I keep him? And that's kind of the whole letter in essence. Uh, that's fun to think that God would put that letter in Scripture. I mean, there's, I'm sure there are a lot more letters Paul had written. In fact, we have reference to several others that clearly we don't have an account, uh, which tells me that God knew exactly which of the letters he wanted to keep as Scripture. It's kind of a fun thought. Now, of these letters... Uh, there are two specific things that I would want to point out. One, we could put in these locational ones. Again, Romans, the two Corinthian letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the Thessalonian letters. 
two subcategories, if you will. One is that four of those were written when Paul was in prison. Paul was in prison at, if, again, since we've gone through the uh, book of Acts, that's our last chapter of Acts, where Paul was kept, in essence, in house arrest in Rome for two years, between, in essence, 60 and 62 AD. During that time, in essence, God grounded Paul so he could start his writing ministry. Actually, not even started, because he had already been writing letters. But <clears throat> those letters will find references to things like, remember my chains. Uh, and, you know, people that are fellow prisoners with you will find, by the way, the books of Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are all, and Philemon, are all uh, prison letters. Ephesians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Exactly, good. The other thing that I'd want to point out, and again, there's a lot more other things. There's going to be enough, and then they call, they, people would call the rest of the letters general letters. I'll get to that in a moment. I don't know if general is really the best word for it. Uh, the other thing I'd want to point out with Paul's letters is there are two specific letters of those 13 that, or I might even say this way, two from those nine uh, churches that he writes to. Well, I mean, he writes to Corinth twice and he writes to Thessalonica twice. Where he had actually never met the church. When you write, when you talk about uh, Galatia or Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica. These are places Paul had spent a good deal of time. As a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesus would actually write a couple more of those letters. But two specific letters, Paul does not, Paul clearly seems to have an awful lot of relationship with 29 names are listed, for instance, in this one. But two specific letters where Paul had never visited the church prior. And that's the letter to the Romans and the letter of Colossians. And because of that, their structures are a little bit unique. The biggest difference between the books of Romans and Colossians and the rest in content or theme is that Paul, in essence, is drafting a let's make sure we're on the same page letter. Now, he'll address things he's heard, but his primary objective is to make sure, since it's not a church he's planted, that it's planted on the same foundational truths. And none could be more clearly that than this one. As where the other letters, in essence, seem to be written in response often to concerns that seem to have reached his ears. Galatia was going back to a traditional Jewish law. The Ephesians had some division between Jews and Gentiles, a very common theme throughout a great deal of these. And they were trying to go back to this, and we'll talk about this sort of mystery religion thing that was prominent in Ephesus. Uh, the Philippians were freaking out. A very, very, very feminine church. Um, I, I only say that because it's the most emotional it's one that most of us normally uh, tends to be a favorite for a lot of people because we tend to be much more uh, raised in that environment now. Um, they're freaking out because Paul 
is in prison and they think he's not going to make it through it. So there's that. And then Paul deals with with the Thessalonians the issue of the end times because it seems to be that there was some real problems there in the church, false teachers, in one case saying that the resurrection had already happened. And so Paul really wanted to make that clear. And so he's in essence the responsive, if that makes sense, versus the two letters of the churches he hasn't seen are more proactive. Once we get beyond the Pauline letters, letters written by Paul, we have a group of letters, in essence, that are the simplest way to put it, are, that are written by other people other than Paul. It's kind of the safest way to put it. And so you have one letter that no one really knows who wrote it, but again, I remind you, the first word of the of the letter usually is the person who wrote it. So Daniel, will you read the first word for from the uh, book of Hebrews? God, at various times in various ways, spoken to us at various times of the prophets. But that is in these last days, spoken to us by his son, by whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the heavens. Now, it's really important to note. I mean, the whole letter was people resorting back to... Romans is going to be... I mean, Hebrews is going to be one of my favorite books in that sense because it's got some of the biggest slap-your-face statements that really freak people out. And for good reason. But the church was abandoning uh, the place where he was written, or various places where he was written because it was circular. Uh, was written to people who were leaving Jesus. There was a, much like the Galatian church. They were leaving the gift of Jesus Christ to go back to a Judaism. And so the whole letter is like, let me point out everything that you have in Judaism and why Jesus is better. What do you have? Angels? Let's talk about angels. Let's talk about the sacrificial system. Let's talk about the high priest. Let's talk about Moses. Or let's bring up all of these guys. Abraham, let's bring him up. And how Jesus is better than all of these things. And how he's the completion of them. So it's really in a very important letter. And from that, then there's this warning. You really want to backslide into that. There is no salvation there. And that's kind of the point. So there's that Hebrews letter. Very scary letter in that sense. And we have other people like James, of course, and Peter and John the Apostle who will write and throw in. And Jude who will throw in their, uh, their cards on the table too. Beautiful, beautiful letters. So you can call them what you want. People call them circular, whatever. I just tend to think of them as books by other writers, you know. But they're letters, nonetheless. And you get a little bit about the insight as you start to look at some of them. I get the idea that Jude and I would have gotten along real well. Uh, Jude, by the way, is the most poetic of all of the writers. He's constantly using metaphors all over the place, but then he's got like metaphor, 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 punch, metaphor, you know. I mean, he just he doesn't have a problem really telling you the truth. But he kind of dances you, you know, he waltzes you into a corner and then and then kicks your head off. Um, I think I really like that. Anyway, so so that we do have that. Um, and then, of course, that takes us to the book of Revelation, which really is, if you think about it, it's the letter of letters because it's actually a letter to seven specific churches. So it really is, dare I say it, it really is an epistle. I mean, it's an epistle times seven, but it is prophecy, clearly. So, with that in mind, um, that kind of puts us into the entirety of our epistle portion. Um, ultimately, the first week you're kind of off the hook with all of this, but as we go from theme to theme to theme, 
we're going to uh, be adding more and more verses. And then, of course, you're going to have to pull up, pick up from those themes what books they've came from, like you've done with the Gospels. And if you think it was a bit challenging, let's face it, you, you, you blasted through the Gospels as far as the information. You took the themes and you were able to tear it apart. We had nearly 500 verses, and you guys just ate it up like candy. But the good news is, or the, the warning is, you had four books to choose from. Now you're going to have a lot more than that. So as that gets larger, it is going to demand a great deal more from you. I want to warn you ahead of time for that. So does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I know this for a fact. You will be thankful. I will be too. But you will be thankful when you're done. Um, Peter letters, for instance, they're very simple in the sense the Christians were being persecuted. First Peter from without, in other words, by unbelievers, Second Peter, by within through false teachers, and through both of them, he gives us something to focus on. The eternal versus the temporary with the first one. The second one, the destruction of all earthly things. Uh, and of course, the idea of as you're being persecuted from within, don't worry, God's got a place for them. The first one, you know, you think that the world's giving you a hard time. Good news is it's temporary. And if you keep your eye on what isn't temporary, you will be okay. Okay. With that in mind, let's do this. We'll take a quick five-minute break to let that gelatinize, mm -hmm. and then we're going to get into the book of Romans. Okay. Rome is the capital of the known empire of its day, called at that time the Eternal Empire. We know it's not eternal. <laughs> Our king is eternal. His throne is from everlasting to everlasting. Caesar's was not. Now they know. Now they know. Now they're just trying to keep people employed. And, oh boy. And, anyways. And so you have the judicial capital, the legislative capital. And so this becomes then a very much a legal document. It is often called, well, not often, but it has been called the Constitution of Christianity. It is methodical. It is systematic. And I love the fact that God has put it out in a way where it is clear and definitively step by step. I also love the fact that it's the first book after the book of Acts. And there's so many things that, you know, we just take for granted. But you have somebody that's started reading the New Testament, discovering Jesus and all of his beautiful facets, and then what life is like now living in the expectation of Christ's manifestation in the book of Acts. And then we get to this one, and it's like, now let's get our heads on straight about everything that we need to know in our basic points of Christianity. The book breaks up into five clear sections. The sections are chapters 1 and 2. The, and again, they're not exclusive, but primary focused. Chapters 1 and 2 is sin. Chapters 3 through 5 is salvation. Chapters 6 through 8, sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11, I like to put in two things. It's God's God is sovereign, but also He is smart. 
And I'll point out why that is so important when we get there. And then finally, chapters 12 through 16, service. They cannot be moved to any other order. They must be in this order. It is a simple thing. Man is a sinner. That's where it all starts. Everybody in the world is a sinner. And we'll talk about each of these. We'll develop each of these for the rest of our time. Except for a little bit we'll spend preparing you for for Corinthians, 1 Corinthians at the end. But basic point, man's a, basic, man's a sinner. He is incapable of saving himself. So there's the universality of sin. Uh, it is an epidemic. It is also absolutely for every human being other than God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Chapters 3 through 5, because the need is universal, so is the answer. And we'll talk about that. Through faith. And uh, by grace. And then we move to the third area. Sanctification is just a fancy word to be set apartness. And what's going to be interesting, and it'll be easy to overlook if we're just the kind that kind of easily just default to our common knowledge, is that the majority of the book, it's usually our favorite. In matter of fact, eight, chapter 8 is usually our favorite chapter because it's sort of like all the dividends. But chapters 6 and 7 are primarily our choice. These are all the choices we can now make and must now make as a Christian. What's interesting, because though the setting apart is God doing the setting apart, we practically make choices that set us apart as well. And it's interesting because, you know, it's sort of like, okay, now I'm saved, let's just kick back and let God do his work. Well, there are choices we need to make. And that will be, and we'll see that. They come in the list of a handful of questions, primarily about the area of continuing to live in sin. Then, uh, after we do that, we get to chapters 9 through 11. And it's important to recognize what we see is God is in control and he knows what he's doing. And it is really fundamental because as God starts to set us apart and we start making these choices, we want God's will. And we have to trust that God's in control or something could go mental and we throw in the towel. You know, you're, you're planning a work, you're watching God do great things, people are getting saved, people are being raised up, things seem like a healthy thing, and then all of a sudden, A-bombs go off one after another. It's like the blitz. And you look, and there is something to be said about, you know, you probably said there's no softer pillow than an innocent mind or an innocent conscience, where you rest at night and you go, God, I have no idea what in the world's going on, but I can sleep tonight because you're in control. And you are smart, and you know what you're doing. And with that, it keeps you from from flying off into a crazy direction. And then comes the area of service. And it is important to recognize, it isn't like, and this is the danger when we're not building a family, but we're building a business. Again, we go back to that, because if we're building a business, we will recruit people that seem to have the qualities uh, that we're looking for versus the character that is necessary. And so, I mean, you know, people that have come to our church once or twice or longer and not served because they haven't really, we haven't had time to really kind of get to know them. And then they leave and by the second week they are actually leading worship somewhere or they are 
um, teaching a Bible study somewhere. I mean, it's in, I mean, it's somebody else's house, but for me, that just blows my mind. As a shepherd, that's the last thing I want is for somebody that we don't trust or know having that kind of influence over people you love. Anyways, I'd rather be, I'd rather fault on the, the too slow side than too quick on that. Because the scripture tells us about not being hasty to lay on hands. With that said, we'll, we'll develop each one of these sections, but understand it's sin, and then salvation, and then sanctification, and then God is sovereign and smart, and then in his service. So, Bruno gives his life to the Lord, uh, you know, and the next thing he wants to serve. Well, he isn't going to have God's qualities or God, like God's values and what really is God's view of success. So he's just going to want to do what he's always learned. He's going to bring what he already knows in business over. Classic thing that happens a lot. And because he wants to get particular things that he's learned from the world into this, well, he's going to have to use then more than likely worldly means to accomplish those worldly ends. Because he hasn't, I mean, after, I mean, yeah, after getting saved, he needs to let God set him apart to show what really is important. And you know, the fundamental thing is, you know what the one thing that really is important more than anything once you get saved? People. Not stuff. Not institutions. Not names. You know, it's people. And that's what changes. And that's the one thing that's easily lost. And that's one of that's the first thing I look for when I see people come in and they have a real heart to serve. What's their view of success? Was it? What's their means? And how does that revolve around people? Or does that revolve around other things? Anyways, with that said. But then, you know, then you have God's desire. You want to see that. And then you have to trust God with the means or the route. Because the route often is going to be very different than the one you would choose. I mean, I would choose one. You, you know, you'd put like an ad in the paper or put up a couple of flyers. And the next thing you know, you've got a whole bunch of people coming in and getting saved. It doesn't normally work that way. But then it isn't about, I mean, it sounds like it's about people, but it's really about numbers. And that's different than people. And then after all of that, God says, all right, you're ready to serve. So let's develop that a little bit part by part. Uh, first of all, chapters one and two are, in essence, the shortest portion uh, it is important to recognize in that that there are two basic groups of people that are broken up. Uh, chapter 1, in essence, kind of focuses more on the irreligious, the unreligious, the Gentile. Chapter 2 really does focus on the Jew. And what he tells us is, and, and the way he puts it is, there are those who are under the law and those that are not under the law. But, the one thing they both have in common is that they're both sinners and they're both guilty before God. And that is really important. Now, in each of these areas, he's going to focus on the gospel. The gospel is going to be added in every one of these sections. And he starts with that. By the time he, after he says his 15 verses of hello and such, then he gets to chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, but also for the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Two very important things in that. One is that faith to faith is ablative, and that is really important, because it really does set everything in motion, so you've got to know that. Ablative is a case, a noun case, which means that it denotes separation. When it says, there was a man sent from God named John, those nouns are ablative. In other words, John wasn't God. He was sent from God. There's a separation between those. The reason I say that is, 
that when it says from faith to faith, it doesn't say you're going because consider this is what some people think. It's like they do this with like things like strength to strength, where it's like I have this faith and I'm going to keep going and get more faith and like from faith to greater faith to greater. But it's like from one kind of faith to another kind of faith. That's the whole point of what real salvation is. From a faith in your own works to a faith in what Christ has done. There's the difference. So the righteousness of God is revealed from a faith that you used to have to a real faith, a saving faith. That's the point. And he says, in essence, it really doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. We all need to make that shift. Because in the simplest sense, it is a faith in yourself that has to be transferred over to a faith in Christ. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. The other thing, and we'll develop this more in a latter time, is that he quotes from Habakkuk, where it says, The just shall live by faith. It is interesting to note that that is quoted three times in the, the New Testament. And it's interesting because the first is here, the second is in Galatians, and the third is in Hebrews. Now, why is that important? Because what he does is he defines every one of those things. The just, here in Romans, shall live, book of Galatians, by faith, Hebrews. As a matter of fact, it is right before Hebrews 11. And does anyone know what Hebrews 11 is? Mm -hmm. The hall of faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. <clears throat> by faith Moses, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah. So by the time you get to all three of those verses, you get exactly what Habakkuk was singing about when he says, the just shall live by faith. Now, in chapter 1, he gives us this, and it is really important that I have to develop this. It tells us, the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness and unrighteousness or ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness or unrighteousness. Because what has been made manifest by God is clear, so that man is without an excuse. His eternal qualities, his divine Godhood, these things are actually clearly manifest by God, so that man is, by the way, in man, so man is without excuse. And even though they knew God, they didn't give God credit, nor were they thankful, but rather, and rather is the key here. What God does in the rest of the chapter 1 is he develops what sin really looks like. And here's the simplest sense. God says, here I am. Man says, yeah, but he trades. He exchanges. He exchanges. And that becomes the truest sin, is that God offers himself and we swap God for something else. <clears throat> but I remind you, it said, the wrath of God is being revealed. Revealed, apocalypsis, the word for it, like in Revelation. And it's interesting because for the rest of the chapter, these are the actions that God does. And it's important to recognize what God's wrath looks like. In verse one, in chapter 118, again, the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Man trades the knowledge of God, and it says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness. Verse 24. Man continues to change now and defiles his body. Therefore, God gave them up to vile passions. And then finally, they don't want to even retain God in their mind anymore. And therefore, God gave them over. It says God gave them. Now notice, this is the wrath of God. He gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them over. Giving them up is like if, if, if Maureen wanted to run into the street and Daniel and I at the moment kind of locked arms to sort of put a barrier so she couldn't. 
but she was still determined to run in that direction. And what happened is, is that we let our hands go. But beyond that was Marcy and Bruno. And so she runs into that barricade as a second barricade. And at that point, again, she has the opportunity. She's like, no, 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 let me go. And when they do, at that point now, they, she meets her last barricade. And that would be, if you will, Daniel and Anna. And they're locking arms. And, you know, she's giving you that powerful, you know, finished barricade. And in which case, you're like, forget it. And at that point, you just run into the street. The ultimate wrath of God is not God smacking you or beating you or hurting you, but rather letting you run into the destruction you want to run into yourself. In fact, the chapter ends with this, that even though they know that doing such things, and it's a downward spiral, that in doing such things is deserving of death, they not only approve, they, only, they not only perform these things or practice these things, but they also then approve those who so do so. And that's a very important point, is that basically by the time the chapter is done, these people in their downward spiral of completely refusing God at any point have created a culture now where they applaud the sin and then they condemn the, sin, uh, condemn the righteous. The same thing that Isaiah said when he says, woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. But then he turns to chapter 2 and he goes, therefore, because you already know that, you are, oh, you are inexcusable, oh man, you forever who judge, for in whatever you judge, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And in chapter 2, he turns now to the Jew. And in the Jew, he says, you are also guilty. But here's the biggest difference. Is that they both have a standard or a law that they'll stand guilty before God. You actually have the law to stand before me. Does anyone know what law the, un or the Gentile has that they stand guilty? Excellent, their conscience, exactly. In both cases, we have a standard we have broken and we stand guilty before God. For the unreligious, and that's probably the better way for us to put it, is the irreligious, or unreligious, however you want to put that. It is that we have a conscience that we still know we've done wrong. On the other side, there is the, the, the religious, and that doesn't even have to be Jewish, let's be honest. Just those that are raised in a religious environment. That's like, you have the law to stand against you. <coughs> of course, in a Jewish case, it's actually the law of God. So what we conclude by the end of, for, of chapters 1 and 2 is this. It doesn't really matter where you came from. You are going to be guilty before God in your own merit. Be it by your own conscience or be it by the law. And he says it this way in 2.12. For as many as who have sinned without law will perish without law. And as many as who have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. In either case, you're going to be judged. So what we conclude by the first of our five sections is, y'all guilty. Chapters 3 through 5 develop the simplest fact, and that is if there is a universal need, then there must be a universal answer. Chapter 3, verse 10 tells us, and he quotes them from Psalm 54, 
that there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good, no, not one. And of course, we, we get the idea here that this is why we're not a seeker-friendly church, because nobody seeks after God. What they're seeking after are the things of God. They're just not seeking after God. As a matter of fact, if they can get them outside of God, they would happily do so, because then they wouldn't have to submit to someone. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. In other words, the law actually should shut you up, not give you something, not put, give you a mountain to stand on. That the world will become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law, it is, we become knowledge, um, there is knowledge of sin. But... Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith. And if you get the chance, circle or underline through faith. 3.22 To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. In other words, there is a universal answer. 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, according to 3.23, how many have sinned? How many fall short of the glory of God? How many would be justified freely by his grace? Oh, it's all the same sentence. Does that make sense? Now, does this mean God is going to justify everybody? No. Well, anybody, he would justify anyone. And the, the fundamental word, the functional word, there's the word freely. The point is, if you want God's justification, he is freely or more than happy to do so by his grace. And that's the other thing to underline. Through faith, by grace. Do you get that? Who can be saved by grace through faith? All. That's a great answer. Well, let me ask, who needs to be saved? All. Who could be saved through, through faith by grace? All. And he says, since there's one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There you go. But, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted by, right, by righteousness. So what, does he do, what he does, by the way, in chapter 4, is a very, very important legal standard called the law of precedent. Marcia, could you tell us anything about the law of precedent? The president makes a decision and then when another case comes up and you think, how do we decide this? You go to that case law and say, well, this is the president, this is how it's going to be applied, this is how you look at that situation. That was beautiful. I was shooting for that thing I just knew you were going to shine on. It's all about making you shine, Marcia. Yeah, the point is, is let's refer to something in history that God's already done so we can see that this is not plan B. He goes, let's use Abraham. 
<coughs> according to the Jewish mind, if I were to read into these verses, do you know when it appears as if a child is made righteous? A boy. That'll probably be your hint. When he's circumcised. Because that puts him under the covenant. And he goes, well, and the whole idea of it is, is that there was those saying, you couldn't be righteous because you're not circumcised. In essence, you're not Jewish, so you can't be righteous, but you're not. Here's the problem with that. He goes, well, let's go to the law of precedent. Where did circumcision, who was the first person who ever practiced circumcision? It was Abraham. So let me ask you, if circumcision was a root to righteousness, then wouldn't God have to declare Abraham righteous after he was circumcised? He'd be like, well, now that you've gotten circumcised, you are therefore righteous. Therefore, circumcision leads to righteousness. Because the problem is that's not the way it works. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. So clearly that can't be the point. So then what made him right? Because it clearly wasn't circumcision because he was already declared righteous before that. Well, he says, this is what it says in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So what actually did it cause? The word believe. Now, it is important to recognize the word belief and the word faith are the same base word. The difference is, faith, if you will, is a noun. Belief is a verb. Well, belief is a noun, but believe is a verb. And the idea is this. Faith is simply trust. Pistujo. It just means trust. Believe means spend that trust. You can have it, but the question is, do you spend it? That's why when someone says, I believe in God... I ask, so you're spending your trust on him? Or are you acknowledging he exists? Very different things. And that, of course, we'll get to when James takes you to the woodshed and says, you really want to think you've got belief and it doesn't do anything? That's not a real faith. You can just see him going, yeah, posers. Now, therefore, chapter 4 then, the whole point is, Abraham clearly gave us the illustration, the law of precedent. Abraham was clearly declared righteous because he exercised his faith. And again, I remind you, how does one, according to this, how does one obtain salvation? It's through and by. What's the through? Faith. Through faith. And what is it by? Grace. We'd say by Jesus, but yeah, grace is. Jesus is the article of that grace. That's our chapter 4. Chapter 3, then, is a universal problem, a universal answer. And the universal answer is through faith by grace. Chapter 4, the law of precedent, it's Abraham. Chapter 5, it's your Benny package, your benefits. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and he says, then, one thing we have is According to 5.18, we have justification of life. Now, I remind you, this may look like a very dry book, in essence, because it's very technical, because it's written to the technical center, if you will, the tech center of the, the tech legal center of the entire known world of its day. But I tell you what, if you're somebody who works within law, you like it clearly spelled out. Because the more room there is for movement within it, 
the harder it is to argue your case in it. So our simple conclusions, everybody needs to be saved. That was chapters 1 and 2 because everybody's guilty. <clears throat> Salvation, everyone can be saved through faith by grace. That's the point. Abraham demonstrated that, by the way, before because he exercised his faith. And when we do, we have justification of life. Now, it is important to note justification is a building term, dekaiosune in the Greek, and it means to be made in the simplest sense. Uh, the idea of it is to have your bills completely paid or to be put in the proper place. How you doing? You following me? Mm-hmm. Good. It sounds like a board meeting at the moment. I'm talking about technical things. I remind you, not every letter is like this. And by the way, not every letter is this pithy, this dense. You know, it's like for some of us, we're kind of used to having candy floss, and for the moment, we're having Victoria sponge. It's definitely denser. You know, sorry, it's gluten reference. You know, <laughs> you know, anyways. The, uh, it's like they're used to having this kind of egg. Now they get one that's solid. They try to sink their teeth into it and little pieces go. All right. Now, in chapters 6 through 8, Paul, start, Paul now starts playing the Pharisaic way of teaching, the Hebraic way of teaching, which is usually through questions. Now, I get, remind you, there are five S's. Chapters 1 and 2, what's the first S? Seven. Excellent. Everyone everyone does it, so everyone's guilty. There's two basic kinds of people for sin. There's the religious and the unreligious. The religious are the Jew. What do they have that condemns them? The law. Okay, and those that aren't religious, what do they have? The conscience. Excellent. Second then, what's our second S? Salvation. Salvation. Okay, chapter three, There. what is the way, what is the root, if you will, for salvation? Through faith. Through, okay, through faith. By grace. by grace. That's our root. Through faith, by grace. Excellent. Chapter 4 was our uh, our law precedent. And who does he bring up for that? Abraham. Abraham. Okay, and then chapter 5, we have our benefits package with justification. Now, uh, that takes us to our third section. Our third S, again, is sanctification. And again, means being set apart for purpose. Here are three questions, by the way. One, first one's in six one. Notice I've highlighted them. What shall we say? What shall we say then? What then? Uh, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's our first question. Second, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And the third question, well then, is the law sin? And he, and he kind of, and what Paul does, we might say this way, I know what you're thinking. And this is, you'd say you're talking to an unbeliever and they say, this is my problem with Christians. They just, they know they're forgiven so they can do whatever they please. That's where your mind's going. You know, and that's what happens. You first get saved and it's like, can I still do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Not like, well, is it good? It's more like, is it permissible? So he goes, look, at, here's the simplest truth. And the first one, shall we continue in sin? Shall we continue living the life we used to live? Because after all, God's grace is going to cover it anyways. Do you know how many people say that kind of stuff, you know, within the Christian church? Have you heard that it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission? Not from someone you love. 
Maybe from, anyways, not even from a boss, because what we're going to find is we all should be driven by conscience, not consequence. Now, so here's the simplest truth of it. You died when you gave your life to Christ. So why do you want to live like that guy anymore? He's dead. That's the simplest of the, of the first one. Should you continue in it? Why would you want to continue in something when the guy died? Honor was laid to rest. There are two deaths a person experiences in life. Uh, as a Christian. And both, by the way, for their benefit. The first, of course, is when you give your life to Christ. Perfectly, they're in this order. And the second is when you get married. So I often say that a marriage is two deaths and a resurrection. Two deaths, one resurrection. The reason marriages often hit the rocks is because someone's not willing to die. They have no idea that there's a benefit on the other side. And it's like, it's easy because, you know, the men are supposed to represent Christ. So, of course, we crawl into the world and die there to give life. We get that. But then the wives do the same because, in essence, they're like the church. And we crawl into Christ's world and we die there so that we can be resurrected into this new thing. So there's a beauty in that. So here's the, so here's the point. So we pull these verses out a lot from regards to baptism because he says, for instance, Do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? If we were buried through him in baptism unto death. Same way that Christ was raised from the dead, so we should walk in the newness of life. Notice, that's a choice we should make. If we've been united together in his death, well, then we should be in his resurrection. The old man was crucified. The body of sin might be done away with. We're no longer slaves of sin. He who died, he's freed from all that. Likewise, then, then you should make this choice. Reckon, and the idea of there is account it, you know, define it. Reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice it's not a not, it's an instead of. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Think that you should obey its lust, but rather, instead, present your bodies as instruments of righteousness. Not unrighteousness to sin, but rather being alive from the dead, members of righteousness, members of instruments of righteousness to God. Sin's not going to have, should not have dominion over you anymore. You're not under the law, you're under grace. So here's the first one. So simplest, should we continue to live the sinful life we did before? Of course not. That guy died. Stop living like that guy. Stop living in the past. Second, well, then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Well, can we just make a sin? Can we just choose? I mean, now, now the difference, notice, is in the first one, continue in sin. Continue in a lifestyle of it. In the second case, should we just be cavalier about our approach to sin because, after all, we're going to be forgiven? Now, do you see the difference? Because in the first one, I'm going to live like I did before. My life is a life of sin. In the second case, it's like, well, when I have the choice to sin, every once in a while, can I be like, well, you know, I could take the day off of this whole Christian thing and just kind of sin when I want to. And he says, listen, don't you realize you're going to be someone's slave? Choose wisely. And that's the second point. First one is the old guy died, stop living like him. The second one is you're going to serve someone. If you surrender yourself, if you know that you can say no to sin, saying yes to sin doesn't allow it just in. It allows yourself under it. And you can become a slave to it. And therefore, he says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reminding us again the point of the gospel. But we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, that we should serve now in the newness of the Spirit. That's the point. The old man died so that the the old man died in sin so the new man could live and serve. Here's well then is the problem the law? Is the law really what the problem is? 
He goes, no, actually what the law did, because it's so perfect, pure, and right, is it actually revealed to me how sinful I really am. So we could say that I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the wills present with me, how to perform it, though I don't find. And he gets to this point where he says, here's the problem. Oh, wretched man that I am. He goes, there is a desire, and then there's a performance. He goes, but my desire is right, but my performance isn't. Because you know why? My flesh still wants to sin. And what Paul says is, I want to warn you, your flesh will always want to sin. Your flesh nature. Which, by the way, is a me-first nature. It's that simple. But I remind you, everything in this is about swapping. Let the old man die so a new man can live. No longer choose sin, but now choose righteousness. No longer offer your body as an instrument of unrighteousness, now offer it as an instrument of righteousness. And then we get to the whole point that takes us to chapter 8, which from which we bank so much on. And the whole point is, like the two Adams, the first, the first man, Adam, and then the second, Jesus, the first God-man, is that we need to choose the second man. A body of death was a death penalty where a Roman guard chained you to a dead body so that the dead body would seep, his death would seep into you. Of course, needless to say, the living body never wins in that case. And so when Paul talks about him, he talks about himself like two people. The old me that wants me first, that he calls his flesh. And the new me that wants Christ first. That's the spirit. And he goes, you know what? These need to be separated for good. Who will separate me? Oh, wretched man. And he goes, could you imagine if we looked at the me first mind and thought of that as a dead, rotten corpse and the smell and how horrible that would be? I mean, I, I'll be honest. I need to see that more. And he goes, oh, wretched man, that I will deliver me from this body of death. And of course, he's like, thanks be to Jesus Christ. That's our part of God to Jesus Christ. And he goes, and then he ends with this weird thing. He says, so then with my mind, I will serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Uh-oh. Wait a minute. They're both going to want to do that? Well, then guess what? I have to make a choice. Which one is going to have who, which one gets the steering wheel? That's the whole point of chapter 8. We call that then walking in the Spirit. So chapter 6, stop living in sin. And stop choosing it. Why? Because that old guy died. And because you don't want it to be your master anymore. Chapter 7 there are two things dwelling simultaneously. The me first flesh and the God first spiritual. And notice how much of that, I mean, if you realize that, you read these verses with me, notice how it focuses on those. Chapter 8, verse 1. We love to, to matter of fact, we put plaques with the first half of the verse. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where we stop it. But notice it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Do you see how that, that, whole, that whole thing builds on chapter 6 and 7? 
For the law of the spirit of life of Christ is made me free from the law of sin and death. Christ is in you. The body is dead because of sin. But the spirit of life because of righteousness. And the spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. You didn't receive again the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then, of course, we get that spirit helping us in our weaknesses. We don't know what we should pray as we ought, but the spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Did you notice in this, the whole idea is, you've got one to choose. You're going to have to make your choice now. How do you want to walk? Me first? Satisfy my flesh? Satisfy my lust? Or Christ first? By the way, for what it's worth, the word uttered here, phanos, means sounded. People like to use this verse and say that this is praying in tongues. It can't be. Because when you pray in tongues, I know this is going to sound pretty revolutionary, but when you pray in tongues, you make a sound. And the Spirit here intercedes. By the way, do you know what the word intercede means? What's that? That's beautiful, but it means literally to pray over. And if he prays over, then he's not going to be through us. Now, by the way, I can give you at least my take on this. And how thankful I am that the Holy Spirit intercedes. Because there are times where I'm actually praying something and I can't hear what the Holy Spirit's praying because he's praying. By the way, why would it be with groans that can't be uttered? Why isn't it just with words? When do you groan? Okay, excellent. When you're frustrated, when you're in pain. Obviously, when you're emotionally spent on it. Now, he's, the Holy Spirit, look at, let me say it this way, I'm just going to just have, Daniel doesn't know, we, so I can put Daniel in that, but I'm just making it Daniel friendly, Daniel doesn't know how to pray like he should. Now, what does that mean, first of all? Do you think that means that he doesn't know the proper prayer talk? He doesn't know how to put in Jesus' name at the end, or how to properly address at the beginning? Do you think that's really what he's saying here? Or is it, Daniel really doesn't know what he should be praying for like he should. Daniel will pray for a lot of things that he really doesn't need, but he's convinced he does. So, what if we know that God hears our prayers? Here's the good news. Is that the Holy Spirit also is praying. And he's praying over Daniel. And as he's praying over Daniel, Daniel can't hear him. Which is good, because you know what happened if Daniel could hear the prayer? Daniel would stop praying and he'd start arguing. And again, Daniel at this moment is basically the example of all of us. So what happens is, Daniel says, I really need a wife tomorrow. I want her to be a German power lifter. And I want her to play bass. And Daniel starts spelling it all out. And again, we're making it humorous because we know that that's not Daniel's way. And the Holy Spirit says, Father, what Daniel's really saying is, he's lonely right now. 
and he needs you to fill that spot. Or maybe like this, Father, because it's with groans. You know why I think he groans? Because I think we don't just pray amiss once. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Sometimes we keep asking God for the same thing. Sometimes we know that it isn't even God's best. But you know what that tells me? Is that we can pray in the flesh. <laughs> How sad to do a spiritual thing in the flesh. He says, you know what the good news is? Is God's got great grace in all that. Because he's actually allowed the Holy Spirit to actually intercede with groans that can't even be uttered. Because we don't even really know how to pray like we should. The good news is, what we really need is being prayed for. Even if I'm not the one praying for it. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? And when I realized that, I mean, let's face it, we could just munch on that verse all night and walk out of here so thankful. But, as a result of that, by the way, notice what he says after that. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know what that means? What if Daniel's like, you know what Daniel's saying is, stop this trial now. And the Holy Spirit is saying, give him more patience and endurance. Because what Daniel's not seeing is how this thing's working to his good. And the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, can see that. So he's going, let him take this to the end. It's kind of like walking out in the middle of surgery because it hurts. It's like, actually, don't let him get off the table now. We're almost done. Something beautiful in that. I love that he put it next. So what shall we say? If God is for us, well, then who could be against us? You know who could be against us? He answers it in the next verse. Well, he who didn't spare his own son. Well, let me ask you, the one person who could stand against us, which is God, didn't spare his own son, but he delivered him up to us all, well, then won't he freely give us all things? Well, let's face it. The one person who could stand against us, remember it started with there's no condemnation, therefore, for those by who are in Christ Jesus who don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. And because of that, the Spirit is interceding. And because of that, we know that no matter what it is, God's going to work it to our good. And because of that, because he didn't, withhold even his own son won't he freely give us anything that's good so therefore we're more than conquerors to him who loved us I don't know if we'll ever understand that one because couldn't he have just said we're conquerors what does it mean to be more than a conqueror isn't a conqueror like the ultimate how could you be more than a conqueror the only way that I can think of being more than a conqueror is actually entering into it having already won. Not the only real difference, because a conqueror is you have a battle and you win it at the end. And you win it really well. To be more than a conqueror, the only thing left to be more winning is to win before you get there. Now how can I win before I... Because, let's face it, it's all win-win. Trials are a win. I know they don't feel like it. That's why I'm praying, take it away. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 what he really means is this. And of course, good thing I can't hear him because I'm like, no, 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 what I really mean. You know? And he's like, no, actually, this is going to work out to his good. And he actually, the worst part is, is I guarantee you, if the Lord played tape on all of us, if he rolled film, every trial we've gone through usually is an answer to a prayer we prayed before. 
Which doesn't, that's not to stop you from praying, by the way. You know? But you're like, God, I really, give me, make me more like you or do something. Maybe, unfortunately, it's something you sang because I wrote it. But in, it, but in the end, God's like, okay. But the route to that, it's going to be a little bit rough. But, so we're more than conquerors in him who loved us. And by the way, because, for means because, I'm persuaded that in the simplest sense, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And he lists things just in case you want to try to throw something out. Like, what accept sin? That's a creative thing. Can't fit it in there. And uh, so that's why we, I mean, it's all pregnant full of all these promises, but they're all in this. You will not seize these promises if you walk in the flesh. You will not be able to enjoy them. Okay. Are you with me so far? I think it would be wise. Let's take a five-minute break. What do you think? And then we'll get back to the next, the last two. Because I want um, you to have a clear head when we go through the next one. Because it's so fun because it's so abused. But that doesn't make it fun. But because it really is so much more clear. So, Lord, first of all, I want to thank you. I want to thank you, Lord, for the fact that though we are all sinners, and we have that in common, we also have salvation in common. And, Lord, I want to thank you that it was by grace. It's not by works. It's not by the law. It is not by our discipline or by our intentions, but rather it is by a gift that you've given. And the avenue is our trust. And you've uh, made it clear, and we, we trust you in that. And I thank you. And because of that, and it's always been that way, all the way back to Abraham, it's always been that way. And with that, we just want to thank you that now we can say no to sin. We don't have to be a slave to it anymore because the person who was a slave died at the cross with you. And the new person that walks can walk in a newness of life where nothing separates us from your love. So uh, I'm going to thank you for that. And uh, Lord, just give us a few minutes to just catch our breath and then prepare us for the last portion. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapters 9 through 11 tend to be the pet chapters for a group of people who, by the way, let me make clear, are part of our body or can be part of the body of Christ, but they emphasize that God is sovereign. Now look at, can you believe that and be a Christian? Of course you can believe that and be a Christian. Is God sovereign? Absolutely he's in control. But there's a part of the mind, and I remind you, the difference between faith, uh, a biblical exercising of trust is that you don't have to understand something to trust God. That's part of the beauty. For instance, the moment you try to add human wisdom into that, you start adding things that seem like inevitable consequences, which would be inevitable if God were a human being. So, if I were completely in control, I would have to, because my mind isn't smart enough to understand everything, I would have to control everything literally to make sure it's all in control. But if I were smarter than that, I could actually position and maneuver things and put people in the places so that I know bang for buck what's going to... I mean, the problem is we're talking billions of potential outcomes, but with a God who has infinite knowledge, none of that's a threat to him. The reason is, is that there is within that particular camp on the extreme side, the idea that if God is completely in control, then man hasn't a choice at all. And that becomes problematic. It becomes problematic because there's too many verses. For instance, the word believe is always in the active tense, which means 
our active case, which which means we have to make a choice to spend our faith someplace. If it were, and we'll see that in chapter 10, verse 9, that if believing were something that just kind of comes upon us, it would be passive. We are responsible for our choices. And scriptures, of course, the whole book is full of God holding people responsible for their choices. Clearly, <coughs> choices are the result of or the product of a person's free will. But then you get to that part where your mind now starts to blow a fuse. Because now the gasket gets blown when you're like, well, how can man really have choice? And how can God clearly have control at the same time? And my answer to that is, God. God's just big enough. But the intellect, of the, and it tends to be the more intellectual side that has to favor the thinking side of life, has to get to that place where it's like, I have to understand this. But there are certain things that have to be beyond our understanding. For instance, there is a peace God offers that is beyond our understanding. That's clear in the book of Philippians. Why is that so important? Because there are some people who believe they can't have peace unless they understand it. And there's something beautiful about the fact that there's a difference between understanding and having an understanding. Like it tells us, for instance, in First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. It doesn't say dwell with your wives and understand them. But you have an understanding. And that's different. And you honor her for that understanding, by the way. The reason I say that is, is that because of what it shows here in these three chapters, 9 through 11, it appears is, if you're trying to read into it and you're being steered, these become champion verses because the idea is that God clearly is maneuvering. And because God is maneuvering, there are those who take it to an extreme. Here's the, the, the big issue. Is everyone who is called chosen? Matter of fact, he says, not everyone who is called is chosen. That's fairly safe. Well, wait a minute. So God calls more people than he chooses? My challenge to you is when we look at chapters 9 through 11, is the issue an issue of salvation or is the issue an issue of calling? And the reason I say that is, is that the whole fundament, and I just want to challenge you, prove me wrong on this, but that the whole point of it is, Israel had a calling to represent, to be a light to the Gentiles. Clearly, that's what Isaiah tells us. They were not doing their job. So God benched them and brought in the Gentiles to be the light. As the Gentiles are being the light, has God cast away permanently the Jew? The answer, of course, is no. Has God condemned the Jews so the Jews can't be saved? The answer is no. In other words, the very things that other people are trying to use as proof texts, Paul actually says, I know you're probably going to think this, but clearly that's a silly answer. Paul says, clearly God saved Jewish people. Do you know how I know that? Paul speaking, because I'm Jewish. God must save Jewish people because I'm Jewish and I'm saved. So that's the point. It can't be an issue of salvation. So in the simplest sense, here's the idea. God, and I know this is a coach. Hey, there are times where a player may be good, but they're not the benefit of the moment, and you bench them. Sometimes they're just not doing what they're supposed to. You don't kick them off the team, you bench them. 
You put them on the bench and you say, sit down, Junior, until you can get your head right. You're in the wrong headspace. And you put someone else in their place. <clears throat> there are certain sports where somebody does something and they get taken off and nobody can be put in their place. Hockey, I think, is one of those. I, I don't know. Has that happened in football, too? Or do you usually you can send someone in? Okay. But you only get a few chances to do that, right? Three. Usually. See, as a, as a basketball coach, if you had a deep enough bench... Usually you, t- you train guys in groups of fives and you rotate them. Yeah, and so because that way you've got fresh legs out there and you wear out the other people till they pant and pass out. It's kind of fun. Anyways, with all of that said, the idea of it is you, God didn't kick them off the team. But then he says, but ultimately the ultimate goal is to restore them, put them back on the field. And he goes, but what happens when they're on the field and the Gentiles are on the field at that point? It's like it's total victory. And I want you to recognize two things. And then we'll get into it. Go to the bottom in 1133. At 1133, his conclusion to these three chapters is this. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You get the idea of God. You know what Paul is saying there? My mind is blown. So when someone says, I know exactly what God's doing in 9 through 11, and it's he's sending, he's choosing for people to go to hell. You know, if Paul doesn't say that, then I kind of get the idea they're not getting what Paul's getting out of this. But then in chapter 12, the next verse says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies, literally, in light of the mercies of God. And the reason I say that is, is that, but Paul expected you to get out of 9 through 11 is God's mercy. He's like, well, now that you've seen God's mercy in 9 through 11, then this is what service looks like. So that's the funny part is that somehow 9 through 11 should lead us to go, wow, what a merciful God he is. And if I get, oh, God just chooses to send some people to hell and there's nothing they can do about it. What a merciful, I don't get merciful God out of that. So for what it's worth, the two things that we should get out of this is one, wow, that's not the way I might do it, but God's ways are clearly bigger and better than mine. And second, what a merciful God we have. Now, if we get that out of this, I think we're at least getting the heart. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could... Wish that I myself were accursed for Christ, for my, from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What he tells us is, and what we're going to see in, in every chapter is Paul's like, my heart is broken over the Jewish people. I'm Jewish myself, Paul speaking, and my heart is really broken for him. But here's the problem. It's not like the word of God didn't have effect. Because not everyone who calls himself Israel is Israel. Israel, I remind you, literally means struggled with God. Israel is the conjugation of two words, El, like Elohim, which means God, and Sarah, like Sarah, but the other one, Sarai, beforehand, which means contends with or fights with. But not everybody who has struggled with God in one actually has won. And it says then that God sidelined the disobedient and contrary people to do personally what they were negligent to do, which was to be a light. And he tells them they were zealous, but not zealous in accordance with knowledge. Zeal isn't enough. 
back to my basketball analogy, there are sometimes people out there and they're given everything they got, but they're not playing according to the rules. They're not playing the plays, so they're exhausting themselves. And what you get out of that is like, you know what, you need to sit down because I don't doubt you're trying hard. You're just not trying hard according to the play playbook. So, 9.30 says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But remember, what does it take to be made right with God? Yes, it is through faith by grace. Excellent. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, hadn't attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they tried it their own way. They sought to establish their own righteousness. And again, you make up your own rules. By the way, if you sought to establish your own righteousness, it doesn't say God told them to try to do it another way. This is their choice. They chose to try to do it another way, but it isn't a way that works. Chapter 10, then he says, look at, brethren, my heart's prayer, desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they'd be saved. Yeah, I bear witness they do have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance or not according to knowledge. They being ignorant of God's righteousness. And by the way, being ignorant is an active, not passive. Do you know what that means? They're choosing not to listen to this. They're choosing to be ignorant to God's righteousness. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You know what it looks like to me? You know what through faith by grace looks like? The gospel laid out. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with your heart you believe and are unto righteousness, and with your mouth confession is made unto salvation. Because, and he quotes from Joel 2, 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So faith then comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And that's a classic verse, of course. Which means even right now, you're getting more of that faith so you can believe. You can spend it. But of course, then he'll say, well, how are they going to believe they haven't heard? How are they going to hear unless someone tells them? How is someone going to tell them unless they're sent? So, here's the questions then. Has God cast away his people? God, Is this about God condemning the Jews? Of course not. I'm a Jew. That's chapter... 11 verse 1. I'm an Israelite, seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. Have they stumbled so that they should fall? Well, wait, what does that mean? Have they fallen so they can't get back up? Is this a permanent thing? Certainly not, he tells us. But through their fall to provoke to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, I'd like you to consider... What Paul is saying is, you need to see God's not only sovereign, he is smart. And he knows that benching them and bringing in the Gentiles at this moment is going to do more than just save more Gentiles. It's going to make the Jews jealous so that they'll finally get out and do what they're supposed to. You know why? Because God is so smart. He knows how to do it. You know, God is so smart, he uses Satan. Have you realized that? Like Satan, there are times where God lets Satan do things because it gets God's purpose done. It often reveals our own heart. We'll see that, by the way, if I ever get to another Tuesday night, because that's the last chapter of Second Samuel. And we'll see that it says that the Lord had David um, census the people, but then it says in First Chronicles 
that actually Satan did it. So who did it? Well, God is sovereign, and the tool he used to translate it up was Satan. Satan's like, I'm going to go do this, and God's like, well, I'm going to get my purpose out of it. And apparently that worked. Apparently that worked with Job. Although, when you read Job, it doesn't seem so awesome, does it? And that's because we've got like a bazillion chapters of suffering, and then there's like, oh, and there's this little happy thing at the end. But from the perspective of eternity, I imagine Job is actually one of the guys large and in charge there. Well, here's the point. So is God condemning people? Is this about God condemning people? You, you know, if he were 13, today he would be like, what, is God doing, is this like God condemning people? Shut up. Is this about people falling, is it like God casting away so they can't be restored? Shut up. It's kind of the idea. Concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. God has not benched them and kicked them off the team. He's just benched them. For, again, remember, that's because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. By the way, you'll have to pardon me for what I'm saying this uh, for those of you who are actually British. But there, is, there was a heresy born in this country in trying to help God with prophecy. About 100 years ago, actually it was 150 years ago, there were some English scholars who tried to figure out how the book of Revelation could come to pass in their time. And there was a really big problem there. The big problem was is that everything revolved around the nation Israel. So the decision, and I remind you, this is not the entire country or nor every Christian, but a group of guys, probably with cigars and leather Chesterfield chairs, sitting around somewhere, stroking their beards like Freud. And they said, well, I think what we've decided, what we've discovered is we are Israel. Now, by the way, that's not just England. Do you know where else that happens? In the Caribbean. Come on, Zion. We are Israel. Not a tribe of Israel, but we are Israel. And a lot of it comes from the idea of trying to make to pass. God just doesn't need our help. You know, when it talks about an age of information, he didn't need us to name it the information age. We didn't, by the way. Someone else did. I mean, it's just interesting how that is. You know, we don't, he doesn't need us trying to, 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 to do shape-shifting on Scripture. When God said, I will restore Israel, do you know what he meant by that? Well, it's easier for us to look at it now, right? And the reason I say that is the, the argument was that Israel had blown it so bad that God has divorced them and then raised up a new Israel in its place. But the, re the problem is, exactly how bad was their sin compared to the churches? Because if God really bailed on that relationship, exactly how long do you think we have? And what these chapters tell us is the opposite. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God doesn't take them back because when God got in the relationship, he already knew it all. Now, there's a great... I, and you know what the beauty is? This is chapters after chapters 6 and 7, if that makes sense. Where the whole, should we continue in sin? We've already resolved that. Because at this point, what we recognize is God got in this relationship knowing all of the stupid things we do and he already put a calling on our life. Isn't there a comfort in that? 
You know why? Because God is not only sovereign, he is really, really smart. He is as smart as smart gets. And because of that, he actually knows how to put you in a place, even in your disobedience, where you will be used. So, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. And of course, then he's like, okay, my mind's blown. So here's the basic of it. God sidelined Israel, called onto the field the, the Gentiles, and there's going to be a day when there'll be a fullness of it. And when that happens, God's going to bring in the Jew. And it's amazing what's going to happen. And he does say this, by the way. You'll really want to get cheeky about this whole thing. It says, you just need to remember, there was a trunk there, and God broke off a branch and he grafted you in. Now, I want you to consider this because we have friends who are messianic who really flip that verse in a weird way. Here's the tree. And as the tree is, God broke off a branch because it was disobedient. And in its place, he stuck these Gentiles, us, if you will. He goes, that's contrary to nature, but it still works. He goes, but if God could do that with a foreign branch, couldn't he just graft the other one back on? I mean, this is God we're talking about. And he goes, so don't you dare get cheeky because you don't support the root. The root supports you. So don't you think this is all about you, Holmes? The scary part about it is how the Messianic community often quotes that verse saying that they're the trunk. And I'm like, excuse me? We're both branches here. You are aware of that, right? And you aren't the one giving life to this whole thing. God is. And so anyways, for what that's worth. <coughs> Back to our point on all of this. That takes us to our last section. Okay, the first S, chapters 1 and 2, is sin. sin. Everybody does it. And whether that is by conscience or by the law, <laughs> you're all guilty. But we are all guilty before God. Second S, 3 through 5, salvation. salvation. It is by, by grace through faith. faith. Yeah, I know. Let's put them in the wrong Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. And with that, then, he used the law of precedent. Who was the person who was our example? Abraham. Abraham. Excellent. Third one, chapter 6 through 8, is sanctification. sanctification. The questions that were asked in the first two chapters of those three is sanctification all revolved about one thing. What was the basic thing? Sin. Should we continue doing it? Should we still choosing it? Is the law it? Okay. Yeah. So you get the idea. It's like, conclude where you stand with sin. Can you imagine? It's like, now that you're saved, conclude where you stand with sin now. Wow. Can you imagine? That's how it starts. All right. And then we have two ways to walk. What are the two ways to walk according to chapter 8? Walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit? There's the point. Where are all the promises? Walking in the spirit. <coughs> Chapters 9 through 11, then, are fourth S, and that is sovereign and smart. smart. Beautiful. Does that make sense? Last one, then. Okay. Service. And we will be done by nine, one way or another. I just want you to know that. Of course, we did start in half, aren't we? Uh, I want you to. I want you to note. All right, now I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to serve. Where do you want me? Children's ministry, cleaning toilets. Where do you want me? Notice how service starts. And don't think that I'm making it up about service. Notice what it says. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable, what? Service. service. You've got to get the end. Now let's talk about service. What's your first act of service according to this? 
Okay, awesome. Presenting what? To whom? To God. Don't miss that. It isn't, okay, now I'm ready to serve. Well, guess what? I'm not the first person you should be telling. Because <laughs> if so, you didn't get this verse. <clears throat> By the way, this is in light of 9 to 11. So you know what that means? Oh my goodness, I didn't initially make the team. <laughs> but now I did. Oh, it's so cool I get to go out there. Coach, can I go out there? And that kind of 9 to 11? And I want to be faithful in that. So... Okay, so what does it look like to offer my body as a living sacrifice? By the way, it's present continuous tense, which means offer and keep offering. Because you know what the problem with a living sacrifice is? It keeps, it keeps crawling off the altar. That's why I have to keep offering it. You know, it isn't like, well, I offered myself to Jesus back in 19, whatever. You know, and it's like, well, this morning, guess what? That body didn't want to stay on the altar. And I'm like, Lord, you need to put it back on the altar. So let me tell you what that looks like. Chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Guess what part of the body you need to offer first? Your mind. So that you would prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, notice there, what do I need to have? What do I, how do I offer my mind? What does it need to be? Transformed. You're right. Transformed by the renewing. renewing. Now, how does my mind get renewed? Might I suggest the word of God? Because if I'm going to serve, I should serve by the book. But first of all, I want you to recognize I've already concluded that I'm going to walk by the spirit. And if I, Because that needs to be reconciled before I decide to serve by the book. Because if I serve by the book without walking by the spirit, it's going to be a real task. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Then it says... And it's important, by the way, and I'll talk about, by the way, not having a haughty spirit as well. In other words, my heart needs to be humble. My mind needs to be transformed. My heart needs to be humble. And then he says, there are many members of one body, but not all members have the same function. So we, being many, are one body and and individual members of one another. Now, notice, by the way, this will be the two times that he brings up spiritual gifts are going to be Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. And in both cases, two themes always are paralleled with it. One is, you're part of a team. And second, love must be your motivation. They should never be, you should never pull the, you know, the uh, electron off of the nucleus. In that. Or you have a really bad explosion that should never have happened. He's like, listen. Before we even start handing out positions, if you will, on the field, or talents so that you can exercise those in positions on the field, never, never forget you are part of a team. And by the way, there's two ways you need to see that. He uses it, of course, here in regards to part of a body. And that is, and please hear me, because you'll... Uh, you know, at least I have a couple of minutes because I really need to make sure that this gets clear. You will normally side with one or the other unless you're the kind that just flips on both. On one side, there is the part of the body that just thinks they it. And it'll say, you know, look it. If you're an eye and you look at the hand, you're like, I don't have need of you. Because don't you dare think that way. 
So there are those who, by the way, once they start getting these spiritual gifts, they start thinking they are the body instead of they're a part of the body. And you get that on the field. There's the guy, and he is the team. By the way, as great as Jordan was, by the way, the Bulls have won both of their playoffs so far. Uh, as good as Jordan was, and forgive me for using a metaphor, um, it was his team that won all of those. He was just part of it. He was a very integral part of that team, but he wasn't the team. Matter of fact, there were many times he was taken off and the team still thrived. And there are other people that were taken off and it just didn't work as well. But then there's the other side of it. Now, maybe that's not you. But the other side says, I'm really not an important part. I'm like a wart. You know? I'm like a hangnail. You know? And he says, don't you dare for a second think that what you're doing isn't important. There is no appendix. Look at God doesn't make spare parts. There are no spare parts in this. And he goes, I want to warn you. Before we start saying, look at these are your gifts kind of thing. Don't you dare for a second think you are not part of a team, whether it's because you think you are the team or because you think you're not significant to it. Regardless of the case, you are not the significant thing. You are a significant thing, regardless of what side you put yourself on. You are part of a team and never forget that. Because if you think on one side, you will isolate yourself and become a jerk. On the other side, you'll isolate yourself and become completely... You know, I, and, you'll, and you'll become insular. You'll become like ineffective. And you know what? I know people that are both. They go, they go back and forth. But, but in the end of it all, chances are you are more susceptible to one side. I can tell you what my wife is, but it's like, you know, it's like in the end of it all, because I pray for her. I pray for her all the time about these things. Because in the end of it all, it's like I. It's one of these areas is where the enemy is going to condemn you. But in both, he does this. He gets you to think about you. He just holds up a mirror and it works. And like, check you out. You know, and it's like, in the end of it all, on this side, you'll compare yourself to everyone else and think you own it. On this side, you'll compare yourself to anyone else and you'll feel like you have nothing. Can you see why he puts this? And I want to remind you, this is even before he says, no, let's talk about how to serve. He's like, this is how we serve. You throw that body on the altar, get that mind in the right place, get that heart in the right place, and never forget you're part of a team. Isn't it great? That's how it starts. Aren't you glad that I'm going to develop everything like that? But can you see why that was so important for me to develop that? Okay, so with that, then he talks about gifts. You know, And, and he goes, look at do them according to the level of trust you have. You want to exercise that trust? You want to act out that belief? Well, then, whether that be, by the way, in prophecy, or whether that be in ministry, by the way, there is a spiritual gift of service. And what that means is, it may be fixing sinks and setting up chairs and so forth, but that is just as significant. You know, I pray for people with this gift, like people that have a burden to set up the gear. Susanna was just telling me a couple of days ago, she goes, I noticed the difference when you're busy setting everything up, like how you are physically after that. Anyway, I'm not fishing at this table, just so you know that, but it's good to pray for it. It's like, that is a very important spiritual gift. Um, mind you, a spiritual gift is an affinity God gives that benefits eternity. So, um, whether that be in teaching or in exhortation, which, by the way, is challenging you to put into practice, um, or giving Boy, wouldn't you love to have a church that's with a lot of people that have the spiritual gift of giving? Oh, yeah. Um, 
or leading, literally standing before people, uh, showing mercy. And then he says these last few things here to close this out. Love has to be without, without, it can't be an act. That's without hypocrisy. A boy with evil is clean, what is good. Chapter 13, by the way, how we deal with the government. And you know how we deal with the government? We submit. We do not have to agree. The only time you don't submit is when they demand that you sin. That's how we deal with them. Chapter 14, well, what about convictions within the church? And by the way, I challenge you to give it a good read one more time. It'll be chapters 14 and 15 that'll do this. I mean, both of them will be emphasized. But here's the simplest of it. <coughs> act in love. An act in love respects another person's convictions. Or respects the difference of their conviction. In the simplest sense, he tells us this is the natural, and now we're very close to that, um, this is the natural uh, conclusion is on one side there's a person with a high conviction, that means they wouldn't dare do it. There's a person that has a lower conviction. And by the way, he calls this a weaker faith. And I think God just does that if, if for no other reason to keep this person humble because they tend to be the one that tends to be more proud. Where, okay, so on this side, I wouldn't even go near that. On this side, come on, we have that freedom. And he goes, the natural propensity is this side condemns the other. Oh, because you do that, you must be. This side looks with contempt. What an idiot for that on this side. He goes, by the way, neither conviction's a sin, but both attitudes are. Does that make sense? And he goes, the church should never do that. A church should actually be a place with differing convictions. And look at, you know, like we talk about, and we'll just throw it on the table, we talk about alcohol here because there's a difference between it being a conviction and a standard set among leaders, if that makes sense. I don't ever ask anybody to have that conviction, but I ask, we always say you default to the highest common denominator in a house. In other words, in this house, if there be, a, if Anna were like she had a conviction, like she had a conviction against me, well, then we would definitely help her find another place to live. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's like if there's like, well, I wouldn't listen to that. I won't watch that or, you know, that kind of thing. The moment it's a conviction and it's someone in the house that whether it's your conviction or not out of love for that person, it's not part of the house. That's just that's really important. I mean, there are certain movies that I know that Suzanne wouldn't want to watch that I could be like, well, it doesn't bother me, but I wouldn't even watch it in the house. Uh, the difference between something she just wouldn't like and something she's like, that would be against her conviction. Because I wouldn't, I, I just know that would grieve her that it was even in the house. That's, that's huge to me. You know? And the reason I say that is the church needs to be that way. And that's what Paul says. So look at, by the way, this is under what category right now? What S are we looking at? Service. Do you realize this is part of your service? Part of your service is respect convictions. Do you see why that's here? I love that it's here. I remind you, it's also under the banner, love needs to be without hypocrisy. He says, receive one who is weaker in the faith, but not to contentions or arguments. In other words, don't just take someone in with a different set of convictions so you can argue with them. Because that's stupid. You know, he doesn't use the word stupid, but you get it. <coughs> so in the last chapter, <coughs> he gets personal. Hey, by the way, I'd really love to come. I can't come right now. I'm hanging out in Ephesus, by the way, that tells us, or in Macedonia, he's telling us about where he's writing from. But I will come after the season. I'm hoping to get to Jerusalem for the feast. And he has no idea, but he is going to go there after the feast. But it isn't necessarily first-class accommodations. 
anyways, and that kind of concludes our book. In, in the short of it for service, offer yourself to God. It's like the first service. And let me say it this way, because even it talks about Jesus in Ephesians 5, that in regards to for the church, like a husband is to the wife. He gave himself, hear this word, for her. He did not give himself to her. He gave himself to God for her. And in the same way, we give ourselves to God for others, not give ourselves to others for God, because somebody is going to dictate what service looks like. And it's got to be God, because if you do it to other people, it'll actually not be right. You can make people happy and still not properly serve them. There's a big difference between blessing and placating. So I offer my mind to God. God, renew it by your word. I offer my heart to God. Oh God, let it be humble with you in the center of it. And let my love be genuinely without acting. Let it be genuine. And then, by the way, God, I know I'm part of a team. And if I didn't know I was part of a team, I would never have given up yesterday. But I'll be honest, aching to be that part of the body, we still had tonight. That makes sense. So, with that in mind, then we deal with different, you know, we de- deal with different scruples. You know, part of the what makes the church unique is that we can have these different things and we can agree to disagree in essence, but we can respect those differences. You know, that's where real tolerance is supposed to be, is in this area. Okay, with that in mind, is there anything, any questions in regards to that? I know that's been way a lot of information, but it's isn't it awesome? What an amazing book this is.